This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hello, mental workers, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are talking about everything to do with working with neurodivergent clients. And here to discuss it with us is our fabulous guest, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Bronwyn. Tell us about yourself. I am the director of Amanda Moses Psychology. Uh, This is a business that is focused on supervision and training for psychologists, but I do predominantly work with early career psychologists and provisional psychologists. I'm also a neurodivergent psychologist, so this is a topic of interest for me. When I'm not supervising and training early career psychologists, I also um, separately run a clinic where I assess and diagnose adults who suspect they may be autistic or uh, be an ADHD. Fantastic. So Amanda has a lot of expertise on this topic. You may remember Amanda from previous episodes as well. Amanda has joined us on Treatment Planning 101 and another episode that I forget right now, but they will be linked to in the show notes. So the first thing that we want to answer is, why is this relevant to early career psychs? And I'll just give listeners a little breakdown. So listener, it's really important to be aware of how you work with each and every individual client and really important to recognize the type of say social group they belong to. This might be their cultural identity, their linguistic identity, and someone's neurodivergence is part of that person. So I say this as very much within the scope of working as a psychologist. It's being aware of how can we tailor therapy to meet this unique person's needs and support them in the best way so that they can lead the life that they want to lead. And so that's why I think it's important. Does that resonate with you, Amanda? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really just thinking of it as another broad range of diversity yeah. um, in the same way that we accommodate other diversities in our clinical space. We're also uh, learning to accommodate neurodiversity. Yeah. So I would say this working underneath, I was actually, I'm actually sad that this is not underneath cultural competency, but I think it should be within that broad range in terms of the competencies for psychologists. What do you think? I absolutely agree with that. And I think that eventually we'll likely see that here in Australia. Over in the UK, uh, we've got the British Psychological Society over there. I'm also registered in the UK, so this is why I know these things. But uh, in the UK, they're definitely a lot more progressive. Um, They're already at where I feel Australia is heading to with their ideas about neurodiversity as part of their published guidelines for psychologists. um, They have discussed how to work in a neurodiversity-affirming way with autistic uh, clients or with clients that are ADHDers, et cetera. So they're very much ahead of us, but I think that gives us a good indication that we are heading there. Excellent. That's really good to hear. I didn't know the British were ahead of us, but that is fantastic that we can still improve in Australia. So really, you are the forerunner for this, Amanda, in promoting neurodiversity-affirming practice. Oh, I I would not consider myself a forerunner. (laughs) I think that there are many amazing people that have come before me. I I, I feel uh, proud to be part of the movement, um, but I don't think I necessarily fronted or own it. Um, There's so many amazing psychologists in this space doing great work, um, and I really 
commend them because I think that they've opened up this conversation and they've opened up this as a safe space for not just our clients who are neurodivergent, but also psychologists who are also neurodivergent too. Yeah. And I guess to be clear, like there are a lot of neurodivergent people that uh, exist in the community, in the general population, and they do come to therapy. And they also come to be assessed as well. So listeners for this episode, you'll be able to apply some of what you've learned today directly into your practice, I hope. I hope so too. Let me ask you, Amanda, just so we can get a definition before we dive into it. What does it mean to be neurodiversity affirming? Essentially, it means that we are shifting our perspective away from a deficit-based model of disability. And we're moving towards a social model of disability. Really, we're saying that, you know, there are neurological differences between individuals, which we call neurotypes. You obviously have an autistic neurotype, uh, ADHD neurotype, an autistic ADHD neurotype, a neurotypical type, and a whole broad range of other things that come under this umbrella of neurodiversity. And what we are trying to say is that neither is better or less than an neurological differences come with their unique sets of strengths and challenges and they're equally valuable. So whereas previously we were seeking to change the person to suit the environment, we are now looking at how do we change the environment to accommodate the person and allow them to thrive, which is really the essence of affirming care. Beautiful. So you really touched on something important there, which is that historically, perhaps clinicians have seen folks who are neurodivergent as being somehow deficient. They need Hmm. to be changed. Yeah, disordered. Disordered. Yeah. And I think it's that change of language we're looking at. And I do want to, um, I I suppose, say that I don't think anyone is necessarily trying to throw out the DSM. I know myself, I, I very much like the DSM and I really like science. Um, but And so I don't think it's that we're saying that autism or ADHD doesn't come with its unique sets of challenges and difficulties. Um, any neurodivergent person will tell you that it absolutely does because they live it. But we are trying to shift away from calling it a disorder and really look at it and um, identify it as a disability, Um, one which is lifelong, one which you're born with, one which is a natural variance of the human brain that can cause some challenges, uh, but equally it comes with some strengths. Uh, But we are no longer valuing this perspective of saying it is a disorder, a psychological disorder, because it is not something that can necessarily be treated. It's not going to go away. Um, And I don't really see the value in pathologizing something like that, because all it really ends up doing is stigmatizing the people who are autistic and making them feel uh, very othered and less than and making them feel like they uh, don't hold the same value as other people in society. Those sorts of attitudes can lead to tangibly worse outcomes for autistic and ADHDers. So they can be, they can encounter discrimination in their daily lives and in their workplaces. They can be prevented from having opportunities that neurotypical folk can have. And we know that autistic folk and other neurodivergent folk have actively told us that being seen as disordered has been harmful. 
It is harmful. And I mean, we have lots of literature and research to back this up now. Um, I know there is a general consensus within the community uh, of a preference not to be labelled as disordered, uh, simply saying that person is autistic or I am autistic is just fine. And the reason that we say this is because it's not something that you can pick up and put down. It's not an accessory. It is a really essential part of who you are. It's almost like saying to someone, you have homosexuality as opposed to saying you are homosexual, right? It's part of who you are as a person. You can't separate it from your essence. Yeah, totally. And trying to get someone to be less homosexual, like we would look at that and be like, no, that's wrong. The majority of us would be like, you can't get someone to be less homosexual. And so we are saying the same thing with autistic and other neurodivergent folk. It's like, you can't be less autistic. It's that we need to support you to be able to thrive in your environment in the way that you want to do that. Yeah, I agree. And like, if you think about it from this perspective, homosexuality was in the DSM um, only in the 80s. Yeah. Um, it was only removed in the 80s, yeah, I believe Yeah, I think was. so, yeah. So, like, yeah, so it wasn't that long ago that that was viewed as a mental disorder, which is so horribly wrong. I need to make sure I'm very clear on my stance that I, yeah. I'm gender and uh, homosexual affirming. Yeah. I, I, you know, I really want to make sure I'm clear on that as I'm talking about this, but we know that that is incredibly... It, it, it's quite distressing even to think about the fact that that was in the DSM. And yes, as you said, we know that that's not something we'd ever try and treat or or change or take away from a person. It's authentically part of who they are, the same way uh, with autism. And the same way I think now we're viewing autism, interestingly, in being in the DSM. So, and I might be digressing a bit, but the, the funny thing is, is that the therapy that they used to use on homosexuals, um, like a conversion therapy, the same person that developed that therapy and uh, created conversion therapy for homosexuals went on to create the therapy we know as ABA for autistic people based on similar principles. So Again, there is a very close link between these things, and I think for that reason. Um, so I'm glad you actually brought that up because it, it's an interesting connection, I think. I did not know that the person who created conversion therapy also created ABA therapy. That's nuts. Isn't it? And doesn't it just tell you everything you need to know about ABA therapy? And I think, Again, it's why it's such a triggering topic for autistic people. Um, it's it's really based on very similar principles, which we know is incredibly problematic. Um, and we know that the, the even the idea of doing that type of therapy on a uh, homosexual person would be grossly wrong. Yeah. Um, and that would not fly um, in 2023. Mm. It would not fly in most parts of the world, hopefully. But these types of principles and therapies are still being used on our young, little autistic people. And it's deeply concerning. Yeah. So it's becoming pretty clear from our discussion why we need neuroaffirming practice, right? Yes. Yeah. And why why do you think, I guess more broadly, that we that I guess we have an obligation to do this neuroaffirming practice? Because as psychologists, we have an obligation to do no harm. 
and to minimise harm. And that's part of our code of ethics. And that's part of the code that we agree to when we work day in and day out of, as psychologists. And I don't believe in my heart that there are people out there as psychologists that are intending harm. I, I don't want to, uh, I, I would rather not have that belief. But I think what it is, is uh, being stuck in an old way of doing things and an old way of thinking about things and not yet being willing to come to the table and really hear out not only what neurodivergent people are saying, but what even the research is saying. Um, and again, as psychologists, even if we think about do no harm, minimize harm wherever possible as our leading principles, there's also this this idea um, or this governing principle that as psychologists, we keep up to date with best practice and evidence-based research. And what is emerging in the research is exactly what we're talking about here today, about how actually all these principles and therapies and things that we were doing with neurodivergent people previously have turned out to be incredibly harmful. Um, we know that neurodivergent people have uh, seven times higher the rate of suicide statistics than the normal population. They have poorer mental health outcomes, particularly when you associate it with those types of harmful therapies. They have a lower life expectancy. Uh, I believe it's between the age of about 40 and 45, and mostly due to these poorer mental health outcomes. So we know from the research that what has been done hasn't worked. It's actually caused more harm to these individuals. And so we are now, I think, under obligation to do better and to listen to this research and listen to the emerging um, literature that's telling us that we need to change the way we are engaging with these individuals. I agree wholeheartedly. Preach. I think it's wonderful that we can keep up to date with this emerging literature. And I think it makes some clinicians a bit nervous how neuroaffirming practice is coming in. They don't really know what to make of it. But when I hear you talk about it, Amanda, and you're like, look, we just have an obligation to keep up with the latest literature. This is what the research is saying. I'm like, okay, no brainer. Get on board. Get on board, folks. Yeah, get on board. Do no harm. And if you're a psychologist, I don't believe that you would be in this industry if you intended harm or wanted to do harm. I think the vast majority of us have really good intentions. And so I would just ask you to check your own biases. And if you are still feeling doubtful about this, do your own research and really read up and listen to not only what um, neurodivergent people are saying, but also what the research and science is saying, because they're quite compatible about the fact that these old practices are really harmful and that we need to be engaging in new ways. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think this is a really exciting area, to be honest, because I think previously we haven't given much weight to patient perspectives. And I really mm. love this movement because it is prioritizing their voices and being like, hey, we are hearing what you are saying. This has been harmful to you. And I can yeah. see that clinicians are still a bit nervous about listening to those voices. But like you say, Amanda, it's like not only are they saying that this has been harmful and we need to listen to that, it's like autistic researchers themselves who have published things are also saying this too. So to me, like I said, I think it's a no brainer. We need to get on board with it. 
Absolutely. And I think, as you said, Bron, even if you can't bring yourself yet to just hear out anecdotal evidence and experience, you can at least look to the science and the research and see that it's all there for you. There are also many neurodivergent psychologists um, in, in this space and are working in this space. And I really look to them as a valuable source of information because not only do they have uh, similar training and qualifications as, you know, many others, of course, but they've also got lived experience. And I think that that dual perspective is incredibly valuable. And I would love to see, I suppose, some more inclusion um, and some more some more consideration, you know, to, to these neurodivergent psychologists that are quite prominent in this space and really being willing to listen hear their perspective, hear what they have to say and and look at it as as a very valuable perspective on this topic. Totally. And we'll be talking about how we can do that a little bit later on in this episode about how we can work collaboratively with our neurodivergent colleagues and have more of that inclusion and consideration. Before then, I do want to get to what are the components of neuroaffirming practice? Is this something that you want me to answer? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I will acknowledge my source. And listener, this is a great resource for you. If you need to go to a space online where you can get your questions answered about how to deliver therapy in a neuroaffirming way, then I can highly recommend visiting the Neurodiversity Affirming Psychologists Australia Facebook group. And this is where I've gotten this resource, which I'm about to read out to you. It was written by Yale Clark and it is titled, Is Your Work or the Work You're Recommending Truly Neurodiversity Affirming? And I'll just read out the components to you, Amanda, and let's see what we have. So if we're recommending neurodiversity affirming resources, we want neurodivergent people to be the majority stakeholders. So they're the people who are researching, writing, speaking, or presenting it. Or at the very least, the work is informed by neurodivergent researchers, writers, speakers, presenters. Neurotypical input, so that's folks who are not neurodivergent, um, is from the position of an ally and does not speak over lived experience. Neurodivergent resources aim to understand the needs of neurodivergent people from their perspective. They aim to adapt the environment to meet neurodivergent expressed needs rather than trying to change the neurodiverse person to meet their environment. So that comes back to the social model of disability that Amanda mentioned earlier. They aim to understand and respect neurodivergent communication styles. They aim to develop therapies that support neurodivergent people instead of trying to, quote, make them more normal. They support neurodivergent people at the sensory somatic level. They use the neurotype identity and culture model instead of the medical pathological disorder model. They are strengths-based, not deficits-focused. So pretty much the more you have of these, the more that the thing you are recommending is neurodiversity affirming. So Amanda, we've heard what the components are if you're recommending neurodivergent resources or what you think is neurodiversity affirming resources. And I'm wondering then, how do we do therapy? I guess like the question is like, what is neurodiversity affirming therapy? So I get that from this, we don't want to change the neurodiverse person to meet their environment. We want to see how we can shape the environment to meet their needs. I understand that we need to consider their sensory 
needs as well. And I understand that we need to help them from a strengths-based perspective. Is is that all I need to do to do neurodiversity affirming therapy like TIC? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. I think you've definitely touched on some of the things that are important, Bronwyn. Uh, some other things I think about are around, it's really about adapting, I think, adapting your practices. Um, and that can come down to small things like adapting the way that you're communicating with your neurodivergent clients, um, but also the way you're actually approaching your therapy as a whole. So recent literature, um, and I've, I've looked and reviewed uh, quite a few meta-analyses about um, you know, what is best practice basically or what are the most evidence-based interventions at the moment for uh, autistic folk. And so far, it's, I mean, unsurprisingly, there's not enough research in the area. <laughs> what? But what we, <laughs> yes, <laughs> surprise, surprise. But what we do know is that essentially what they've said is for now, while we are still conducting and engaging in ongoing research on this, we can assume that we we will use the same evidence-based therapies and interventions as we would for a neurotypical population, but the caveat is in how we adapt. And what I mean by that is that we really need to consider that person and their context, the fact that they are neurodivergent, so that our whole therapy really adapts to meet their needs as opposed to trying to get them to adapt to the therapy. The same way we would when we are working with clients that are culturally diverse, um, gender diverse, um, and all the other diversities that we work with, we adapt, we adapt, we don't expect them to come and adapt. We adapt to make it more accessible for them and ensure that we're checking ourselves about some of the interventions we're using. And if they're really, um, if they're appropriate, for that client are these accessible are they appropriate for this client given their context given their neurological differences so can you give me an example with say cognitive behavioral therapy so my understanding is that cognitive behavioral therapy developed by white cisgendered men and applied to white cisgendered women who we may or may not have been neurodivergent but as far as we know uh, we don't know so you know, when I think about, say, the CBT technique of thought evaluation and replacement of thoughts with more balanced perspectives, how, do, how does that work with neurodivergent folk in general? So I'm a big fan of CBT and I can already feel the kind of uh, <laughs> the roar of all the neurodivergent folk listening to this <laughs> uh, because <laughs> I know many talk about not liking CBT, but if you really know CBT as intimately as I feel I do, I think that you'll find that in its essence, it's actually very neurodivergent friendly. I mean, it's structured. It follows a very logical approach. There's a nice step-by-step -step fashion to it. There are so many things to love about CBT. And I always feel like when people... When people have a gripe with it, it's because they haven't experienced it in the way it was intended uh, to really be practiced. That's my thoughts. And a part of me thinks, who knows, Beck himself could have even been neurodivergent. Just with the whole layout of his therapy, I'm like, come on, the structure, the logic, 
there's got to be something there. <laughs> yeah. But I, I would say to you, like with cognitive stuff, for example, if I'm working with a neurodivergent person, the, the types of things I'm considering are really around the thought itself. Like, is this thought uh, appropriate given their context, right? Like, for example, uh, for a neurotypical person entering a social situation or, I don't know, even just let's say going down to the shopping centre, um, let's say they had a lot of anxiety about going to the shopping centre and we might automatically think that that person has potentially a agoraphobia, a social anxiety disorder, a whole range of other things, and we'd be trying to work out uh, adapting or um, helping them to address and change the thoughts they're having to be more adaptive around going to the shopping centre. Whereas an autistic folk, let's say they've come in and they're talking to you about, you know, extreme anxiety and avoidance around going to a shopping centre. My automatic thoughts are going to be not that this person potentially has agoraphobia where where they might or a social anxiety disorder. The first thing I'm thinking of is what is going on in that environment and what do I need to address there first? That's my first step. So are they anxious and avoidant about going to that shopping center because of the sounds, the smells, the light, the the space, um, the elements of their sensory environment, and how can I first accommodate that and then kind of see where we're at with that before I might look at their thoughts and helping them evaluate and modify it, right? Because it's not, I suppose what I'm trying to say is there are going to be many circumstances for a neurodivergent person where their thoughts are completely reflective of reality, where they may not be for a neurotypical person. And so you need to think about that. Like, are these thoughts appropriate and reflective of reality given the context that this person lives in and if so I'm not trying to challenge that thought and I'm not going to try and change that thought I'm going to be thinking about the environment and how do I possibly change the environment or help them learn how to accommodate themselves so they can participate um and so it's like a different perspective but I I could and would still use other CBT type techniques and I could and would still use cognitive strategies within your neurodivergent person where it's appropriate. It just may not always be appropriate. I hope that makes sense. It does make sense. And so I guess like with a neurotypical person who's experiencing the sphere of shopping centres, you might hypothesize that it's because of the way they are viewing the situation that is leading to anxiety and fear and then they respond to that anxiety and fear with avoidance but for a neurodivergent person who has the same fear of the shopping center you might hypothesize that it's the environment that is leading to a sensory overload and then that's leading to the anxiety and they respond to that with avoidance so then the intervention is to help modify the environment or help them, I guess, be at ease with the environment, say through wearing sunglasses or noise cancelling headphones, if that's what they value and they really do want to go to the shopping centre. And then we would expect the anxiety and fear to reduce and then they would avoid the shopping centre less. So is that what you're getting at? Yeah. And um, I absolutely, you've 
you've kind of really summarized that so nicely. <laughs> I, I, um, I'm trying to think of a circumstance that I can also highlight where a cognitive strategy would be appropriate. Yeah. And I, th- I think I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking of circumstances or situations where their thoughts are not really reflective of reality and they are going to have times like that, like everyone else, right? Like the thoughts may just be, uh, quite catastrophic in nature, not necessarily reflective of their reality, even in the context of their disability. Um, and that could be something regarding... Um, I was thinking like, oh, everybody's staring at me as I go into the shopping centre. Exactly. Yeah. And look, that that could be true if they were openly stimming and really loud yeah. and all the things, but chances are, and we could probably even look at that and say, well, even if they were staring at you, like, what does that mean? Yeah. And it could be the idea that someone's staring at me and having negative thoughts about me. They could be, but, um, and we might even be looking at that and, and looking at reviewing the the impact of them holding those thoughts to be true and the impact of those types of thoughts and, and that type of mind reading that you're doing and how that's impacting how you feel in the moment and whether or not really um, we can ever know for sure what anyone around us is thinking and if there's any value in even going down that 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 train of thinking. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's like when we invest a lot of time and energy in looking at that thought, then that might take us away from the experience of enjoying the shopping center. I mean, that's kind of an act-based perspective, but it ties into CBT as well, I feel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, um, act comes under the CBT umbrella, yeah. you know? So um, yeah, absolutely. I think like there's there's still space for cognitive interventions because if there wasn't, we're assuming that uh, a neurodivergence person's thoughts are always reflective of reality. And th- it just couldn't be true because we're human and <laughs> we're going to have errors in our thinking like everybody. So um, I suppose I would use them where they're applicable and I wouldn't when they're not. And it takes someone who's skilled and understanding of a neurodivergent person's world and context to know the difference. So Amanda, I want to run this past you, maybe the same situation, but what would be a non-neurodiversity affirming approach? Here's my idea and tell me what you think. So I think a non-neuroaffirming approach would be for the same person who has a fear of shopping centers, the clinician would be like, uh, we need to teach you distress tolerance skills. So you just need to grit your teeth and go through it. And you also need to be thinking I can do this, this anxiety can't hurt me, I'm going to go into the shopping centre. So you're telling them what to think and that their way of thinking is wrong and they need to think your way of thinking and then you're telling them that they need to essentially stop being so overreactive to the situation. Is that a good example of non-neuroaffirming practice? Yeah, I think that's a really good example. I think that we would seek to accommodate first and provide those accommodations and really validate that this is their experience. And of course, it's distressing. Accommodate that. And I think whatever's residual following accommodations, we could probably work through in therapy. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay, I really like that. So I guess for listeners who are trying to get on board with this, they really want to do the neuroaffirming practice, they, they want to make sure that they're supporting their neurodivergent clients as best they can, how do they know that they're doing it right? I think to do this right, you need to be quite self-reflective 
You really need to be constantly evaluating yourself and thinking about what are the biases, ideologies, limiting beliefs that you're bringing into your work when you're working with neurodivergent people? Uh, What type of language do you use? And I think also something that I'm kind of seeing as a bit of a trend is psychologists and other therapists and other allied health professionals, I don't want to just say just psychologists, dismissing the idea that somebody could be neurodivergent based on them presenting in a way that seems to them as quite capable um, and functional. And so holding these really outdated views means that clients are coming to them potentially wanting to explore their neurotype or discussing that they feel they could be neurodivergent and they're getting gaslighted by their allied health professionals. They're getting turned away. They're getting dismissed. They're getting faced with um, sometimes really hurtful comments uh, about how, well, there's no way you could be because, and they might rattle off a list of things like, I don't know, you've got a university degree or, you know, you you have a partner, like that somehow makes you um, not neurodivergent or you have friends um, because apparently neurodivergent people don't know how to socialize. Oh, so, lonely loners. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so like, I think again, it, it's these outdated views that are really harmful because it's, it's the gatekeeping I'm seeing a lot of that really gets me and that triggers me. It's the gatekeeping and the not wanting to, and they're not wanting to explore people's potential neurodivergence and not even the willingness to be like, you know what? I don't know enough about this. I'll refer it on. It's just the plain out. No, they couldn't be. No. Why does it bother people so much? I really don't know. And I'm not quite there yet with understanding it, but I I feel that we need to do better. And if somebody comes to you with, with that kind of question in mind about who am I, I want to explore my brain. I want to understand myself better we as psychologists or allied health professionals need to do better in sitting with that with our clients and being open and being willing to validate and being willing to explore the idea that we may not know the face of neurodivergence um, in the way we think we do. So it requires us to be really humble, you know, just like we've learned the concept of cultural humility. We also need to be humble to the idea that we might not be 100% aware of how neurodivergence presents in every single person on this planet. Absolutely. Uh, Because it's a, I do not like to use the word spectrum because I feel like it's often used incorrectly. But I, I suppose what I want to say is that everybody is a unique individual regardless of their youth their neurotype. The same way I wouldn't expect two uh, or 10 neurotypical people to be alike. Why would I expect two or 10 neurodivergent people to be alike? It makes no sense. Uh, We are all unique individuals and we all come with our broad ranges of strengths and challenges. Yeah. So I guess like, I meant, uh, I feel so angry when I hear that because uh, what you're talking about before, because I hear it all the time, sadly and angrily that I guess I hear from allied health professionals that are just like, no, you couldn't be ADHD. No, you couldn't be autistic. And it's for those reasons that you're saying it's like, you've got a partner or you've got a degree and it's like, what? (laughs) 
exactly yeah what yeah what like I it blows my mind and I think again it's just goes to show how outdated the views of neurodivergence are and why that is so harmful to stick with that line of thinking um because what you're finding is that it's you know it's minimizing uh the chance for people who might be presenting with these highly internalized presentations, it's minimizing their chance of getting access to support. Exactly. And I think that what you'll find from the literature, if if any of you would like to read it, is that um, these highly internalized or high masking presentations, as we call them, come with higher association of mental health challenges, uh, particularly higher rates of autistic burnout, et cetera. And so what you're finding is that these people are really quite vulnerable to mental health problems because of how they present in this way that appears really functional, um, you know, to a neurotypical standard, but it's because they've learned how to internalise it and that causes uh, really... Uh, problematic mental health problems. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So overall, we know if we're doing neuroaffirming practice right, if we're continually examining our biases and prejudices and ideas of what neurodiversity looks like, I would add in that I think we know if we're doing it right, if we're having an open discussion with clients about their experience of therapy and whether they're finding it meets their needs and whether it is validating of their experiences. Would you agree with that, Amanda? Yeah, I love that idea. Absolutely. I think that's a great suggestion. Yeah. Because I just noticed, like, I was just reflecting on my experience. I work with a lot of neurodivergent clients, like being a neurodivergent psychologist myself. I haven't actively sought them out, but somehow they've come to me and they've stuck with me. Um, <laughs> um, so so we, I just I just find it really easy to work with neurodivergent clients. Yeah. And that's one thing that I do. And I think they really like it because neurodivergent folks tend to like um, open discussions, authenticity, discussing how this is going in a quite a structured way. And so I'll be like, is everything going okay with how we're progressing in therapy? And they'll give me their honest answers. And I'll be like, great, ABCD, like, okay, we'll improve on that. We'll keep on going with this and we'll, ch- we'll stop this. We'll change this. And then they feel good. I feel good. And we're doing therapy good. I love that. Um, and I also love how you've been like a magnet to all these yeah, neurodivergent yeah. people. Uh, <laughs> I hear I hear it from a lot of uh, neurodivergent therapists. I think it's um, I don't know what it is, and maybe it kind of comes back to the double empathy problem, perhaps. Yeah. Like you know how we we know of this idea that you know you put two neurodivergent people together, no problems yeah. with socializing or communicating. Yeah. You put two neurotypical people together, same thing, but then you mix the neurotypes and it's chaos. Yeah, no totally. one understands each other. No one knows the rules. No one knows what's going on. Um, and so I think that naturally and instinctively without realizing it, you just have neurodivergent people drawn to each other. Yeah, it just happened. And like, literally it's, it's like that. It's like neurodivergent clients will have seen psychologists in the past and they will have been branded as too difficult, too resistant. They will have found that the psychologists don't understand them and they don't, they're not meeting their needs. And then Mm. it's not like I think I'm an amazing psychologist, but I literally think it's because they come to me and I'm like, okay, like I get your neurotype. Um, I don't get you exactly. I still have to learn things, but I'm willing to have that openness and examine what, who they are. And I guess just understand them in that way. I love that one. Thank you. 
Okay. So one thing I want to move to, Amanda, if it's okay, we've talked about how we can be neurodiversity affirming to our clients. I would like to talk about how we can extend that neuroaffirming stance to our colleagues. So how can other psychologists be affirming with their neurodivergent colleagues? I'm interested in your perspective. That's a really good question. And I think it's an important one because I I think up until recently, psychologists were probably unaware that um, neurodivergent people uh, amongst you. They're right here with you yeah. inside your profession. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, I think that it's a really important consideration. And what I'm loving is seeing more psychologists be out and open about their neurodivergence where they feel safe to do so, because understandably it doesn't feel safe for everybody. I was recently at a conference in Wellington a few months ago. There was an APS conference on neurodiversity and trauma. Um, and many of the presenters there were neurodivergent themselves talking about neurodiversity, which was so refreshing, if I'm honest. So I think what I would say is a few things. I think that affirming care extends also to your colleagues. Um, it's about recognizing that we're here amongst you. And when you use offensive language or slurs, or when you talk about even your clients, like say in a group supervision context or a training context, and you're talking about neurodivergent people in a way that uh, is potentially uh, belittling, demeaning, uh, condescending, even if you don't mean it, your colleagues are hearing this and it, it deeply impacts the way that we feel about ourselves and the way that we feel about ourselves in this profession. There are a lot of allies that are doing amazing work yeah. and there are a lot of neurotypical psychologists that are doing fantastic work in this space. So I do want to commend all of them too. Um, but just in that kind of spirit of, in any context, um, valuing lived experience, I think we can extend that to our neurodivergent mm. colleagues as well. Mm. Value mm. their lived experience, don't talk over them, um, include them in the conversation and actually preference their perspectives because they've got that unique voice. Yeah. And I don't know about everyone else, but as a neurodivergent person myself, it's like, I've already felt othered in this profession. I've already felt like I don't belong and I don't fit in. And I've already experienced several instances of rejection by colleagues, uh, I think related to my neurodiversity. And so like, I'm not sure if other people have had those experiences. I know for like neurodiversity folks, like it's pretty shared. It's pretty common. Um, so yeah, just try not to do that anymore. Then, then, you know, we have to, we've already gone through it. I'd love to be included. <laughs> yeah. And particularly included about a topic that is deeply, um, like it, it feels very deeply personal. Yeah. It's about you. Uh, when people talk about neurodiversity, I feel like they're, they're talking about me. Yeah. Um, and it feels so deeply personal. You can't pull yourself away from that. And you're right. You do want to feel included. And I know you're not the only person who's felt that way in this profession. I too have uh, been a subject of uh, bullying and really harsh criticism um, from people because of my neurodivergence in this space. And that is quite upsetting and it's it's quite concerning, of course, as well. Mm, mm. Amanda, I reckon we're coming up to the end. And is there anything that 
you know, we've talked about how to deliver neuroaffirming practice to clients. We've talked about how to relate to each other and have a more collegial profession and, and be overall excellent. Is there anything that you want to leave listeners with? I think I would just say that as we know better, we do better. And so we all have an obligation to continue with our learning and developing competencies. Um, This isn't a pseudoscience. This is real science when we talk about affirming care and affirming practice. Um, And I would just say that, you know, consider consider what we know um, about our responsibilities and duties to do no harm, to minimize harm. And I think that really in its essence, affirming practice is not about, again, throwing out science, the DSM, evidence-based practice. I am a huge fan of all of those things. I think what it is, is actually, it's kind of considering that perhaps we got it wrong and perhaps uh, we, we haven't approached things in the best way over the last few decades and now that we know that there's been harm caused we have an obligation to do better because we now know better and the research is telling us something different so we have an obligation to follow that and to make sure we're minimizing harm wherever we can to our clients um to our colleagues uh to the general public really uh, because we hold a very valuable position in society we have a position of trust and what you say and do doesn't matter and does have quite big impacts beautifully said amanda it has been a pleasure to have you on the episode and i'm so grateful that we could learn from your experience perspective and knowledge thank you Thanks, Bronwyn. It was so lovely to be back on. And if listeners want to learn more about you or get in touch with some of your amazing resources that you do have for early career psychologists, where can they find you? My website is www.amandamosaspsychology.com.au. I've actually recently run a training on neurodiversity affirming therapy, uh, which counts as professional development. Um, That is live on my website and ready to be purchased and watched should you wish. Uh, I also am quite active on Facebook and LinkedIn and I run a Facebook group specifically for early career psychologists. So you're welcome to reach out to me in any of those platforms. Fantastic. And listeners, we will have all those links in the show notes. Thanks again, Amanda. Thanks listeners for listening and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. My mission is to unpack the challenges faced by early career psychologists so they don't have to go through them alone. I need your help to get these episodes out there and there's a bunch of really cool free things you can do to help me. Most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. That way you get the show as soon as I put it out. Also, consider telling a friend and I would be so honoured if you'd share some of our episodes on social media. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.